In a world of career uncertainty, there is one variable you have total control over, yourself. Welcome to Forever Employable Stories, where expert digital transformation consultant and successful entrepreneur Jeff Gotthelf will share conversations with unique and inspiring individuals who have taken charge of their professional lives, leveraged their expertise, built an audience, and future-proofed their careers so you can learn how to do the same. Here's your host, Jeff Gotthelf. Nir Eyal is a familiar name to many people. As the author of the best-selling Hooked, he has given many companies a view into how to build habit-forming products. What's particularly interesting is that in doing the research for the book, based on his success as an entrepreneur and founder, he built his own habit-forming product, his blog. After exiting two companies that were built during the early days of Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, Nir used the front-row seat he had to these companies' success to think about and explore what made their products so sticky and successful. Nir began writing on a blogger's site, remember those? What he was learning. He shared insights, learnings, thoughts on how to build habit-forming products. This was a casual side gig that helped him work through his own research and thoughts. But something interesting happened on the way to his first book. People started reading his blog. Because he was consistent and active and offered valuable tactical details, not only were people reading, but started asking him to consult on their own project. The main thing Nir recommends is owning your audience. When you publish on other platforms, you might get some better distribution, but ultimately you don't own that audience. Nir shares many more tactical insights in the interview, so take a listen now to his forever employable story. Hey folks, welcome back. I am excited to host another Forever Employable Stories episode, this time with a relatively new friend of mine, Nir Eyal author and consultant. Nir, welcome to the Forever Employable Stories podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Appreciate you having me. I'm thrilled. I say accidental because I never set out to create a podcast or any kind of podcasty type thing, but it turns out that these series of stories that I've been putting out there kind of qualify as a podcast. So in any case, like one of the things that I love about these stories is that I've been looking for people from a diverse set of backgrounds and really looking for different things about them. So tell us a little bit about yourself and your career, how you got to where you are today. Sure. So I'm what you call a behavioral designer. So I help companies design the kind of products and services that build healthy habits in people's lives. The way I came to do this is uh, I spent two companies. The first was in the solar energy business. And then I sold that, went to business school at Stanford, And while at Stanford, started a company in the advertising and gaming space back in 2007, back when apps didn't mean apps on your phone because there was no such thing as an Apple App Store back then. Apps meant Facebook apps. And we had this really great vantage point in this new company to see the rise of many of these world-changing businesses like Facebook and Google and Instagram and WhatsApp and Slack and Snapchat you know, being in Silicon Valley at that time was an amazing opportunity. And many of these companies were my clients at my second company. And when that company was acquired, I had an opportunity to kind of sit down and ask myself what I wanted to do next. And I had this hypothesis that the future of companies that would really matter in the world would be the ones that were able to build habits because I could see that as the interface that we interact with technology shrinks, as it went from desktops to laptops 
to mobile devices, to now wearable devices, and now even more recently, auditory devices like the Amazon Alexa and Microsoft Cortana or Siri. Now, the interface has, has disappeared, yeah. <laughs> right? And yeah. so what, what I saw happening is that the visual interface, as it got smaller and smaller, left less room for what we call external triggers, for the pings, the dings, the rings, the notifications, which meant, of course, that if you didn't build a habit with consumers, then your product might as well not exist, right? If you're not on the home screen, if you're not top of mind, then your product won't exist. And so what I wanted to do was to figure out how do you build a habit-forming product? So I coalesced the lessons of what I picked up from these companies that I've worked with, like you know Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, these companies that I saw the rise of. I had many friends who worked at those companies as well. And the idea behind this was not only to figure out for myself what business I wanted to start next, thinking I would start another tech company, but more so I started publishing what I was learning. I just started blogging about it. Mm. And the idea was to kind of democratize these secrets, the psychology of what is it about Facebook and the gaming companies and Instagram and Slack? You know, what is it about these, these tech products that make them so habit-forming, so engaging? Well, I started blogging about it. And after about two years of just, you know, casually, just for fun, blogging about this kind of stuff and kind of finding my way, and then I started getting some consulting engagements. People wanted me to help them build habit-forming products. And then a few years into it, I got a phone call from a professor of mine at Stanford. And he said, I really like your model. I really like the research you've done. You put a lot of thought into it. What do you think about teaching a class together? Mm -hmm. I thought, great, that sounds terrific. And so he kind of gave me carte blanche to design a class at the Graduate School of Business and taught there for a few years. Then I moved over to the design school at Stanford, the, the Hospital Platner Institute of Design, where I taught for many years. That then became my book, my first book, Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products which I originally self-published. I was thinking, you know, I had maybe like 5,000 blog subscribers at the time. And they kept emailing me and saying, you know, can you put your blog post into a book? Okay, sure. So I thought it would just be like a 15-page PDF that I'd give out for free. Well, it turned into a 150-page PDF. And I decided to put it out on KDP and hit publish and sold a few copies. And then one day I got a call from an agent and said, look, your book is really interesting. I'm getting some people that I think would be very interested in publishing it. What do you think about selling it? And I said, sure, that sounds interesting. What can you do? And she had a pretty easy time of selling it because at that point it had received, it received 100 five-star reviews on right. Amazon. And that's kind of the tipping point where people start looking at a book and say, oh, 100 five-star reviews and it's self-published. Huh, that's interesting. And so I didn't have to really sell the book. It was bought. So we were off to the races. We, uh, it was uh, Portfolio, which is a division of Random House, ended up publishing it. And the book has sold a quarter million copies in the past six years. And it's used in every industry you can imagine from uh, healthcare to education companies to all sorts of different businesses use the hook model to build healthy habits in users' lives, to get people hooked to good habits as opposed to just frivolous habits to exercise more, to eat right, to learn a new language, for example. This is some of the applications of the hook model. Yeah, so that was my first book. And then that kind of launched my speaking career, which I didn't really anticipate, but turned out <laughs> to be a, a very fun way to make a living. More recently, just last year, late last year, I published my second book called Indistractable, right. which if hooked was about how to build good habits, Indistractable is about how to break bad habits because I understand both sides, right? I understand the Achilles heel of what makes these technologies so habit-forming. 
So I really wanted to write a book to help me solve my own problem of how often I, I felt distracted in my life. And so that book was just published in September and uh, it was a bestseller. It's already outselling Hooked. So that's, that's my life. Is that kind of cover it? <laughs> it does. It does. It's amazing. It's a really good story too, because it really, in many ways, exemplifies a lot of the stuff that I've been talking about in Forever Employable. I want to kind of go back in time just a little bit through the story. And I want to dig into just a couple of the specific details that you mentioned here. So my first clarifying question is, you said you just started blogging casually about your experiences from the lessons, you know, from building your companies and seeing what Facebook and Twitter and Instagram were doing. Was this on on your own blog? Where were you blogging? I was blogging at Blogger through that platform, which I don't even know if people use it anymore. But at the time, it was the easiest way to start blogging. You just use blogger.com. You built a little website. Today, there are even easier tools. Like Medium wasn't around at the time, but now Medium is even an easier way to start a blog. But Blogger was you know, just kind of off the shelf service that you could start using. Yeah, that's interesting. At any point, like you're building this, and one of the things that I've done in, in my career, I've used Medium, I've used, you know, other platforms, but ultimately, you know, you're the product on those platforms. And at any point, they can kind of close that off from you. And then your channel's gone at that point. Was there any point where you decided, you know what, I've got to take my content and bring it in house under your own brand? Yeah. So, and this is my first piece of advice for someone who says, Hey, I want to write a book. What should I do? How do I, you know, it's funny. A lot of people call me for advice around book publishing and they say, how did you sell so many copies as if you can, you know, shove crap down people's throats. You know, the first answer is write a book people want to read, right? (laughs) Like write something useful. But the second part is to make sure that you find people who like what you do. And so one of the best decisions I ever made was to give people the opportunity to hear from me in the future. And so that's how I built this audience over the past like eight years or so now, you know, slow and steady, kind of built this email list to about 100,000 people now. And so today, I don't sell anything. It's not very aggressive. There's nothing to do in, on my website other than you know, if you want to hear more, uh, more from me, I publish every two weeks. If you want to see my next article, uh, if you submit your email in this box, I'll send you my articles. That's it. And I also do like a weekly newsletter digest of articles I've read that I found interesting. And maybe they, you know, my readers would find them interesting too. And yeah. so slow and steady that grew my email list to about 100,000 email subscribers. And that is my first piece of advice to anyone who wants to build an audience is social media and medium and everything else out there is the icing on the cake. It's not the cake. The cake is the audience you own, not the audience you rent. If you are publishing, you know, if you tweet or you post on Facebook or any platform, they own the habit. You want to get people to the habit of engaging with you directly. And the best way to do that is through email for an author. And today that's become such gospel that to go into a publisher and say, hey, I have the most amazing book. What do you think? It's hard to get a meeting. It's hard to get their interest if you don't have an audience because they know that having a big email list doesn't guarantee success, but not having a big email list is a high predictor of failure. There are tons and tons of great books that people spent years writing that nobody ever reads because the author didn't have an audience. And that used to be okay because you went to the publisher and the publisher said, well, if you want to get your book onto a bookstore shelf, you have to go through us. But that's not the case anymore. 90% of my books are sold through Amazon. So the author can't sit back and say, oh, the publisher will sell books for me. No, it doesn't work that way. You as the author have to sell those books. 
And the way you do that is by finding people who want to read what you have to write. It reminds me, I used to be a broke touring musician for a bunch of years uh, through college and after college. And we were trying to get record deals when that mattered, right? So that's when you get signed with a record label. And it's a very similar thing. You know, the bands that successfully sold 10, 15, 20, 30,000 CDs out of the back of their car, right? At the back of their bus or their van or whatever it is, they were the ones who got record deals because they had proven traction with an audience. They had an audience built in. They had successfully sold their product already without any assistance that, that the record labels could just see sort of amplifying that rather than having to create that spark underneath people. It's interesting. You mentioned eight years, and that's the other, that's the other bit of detail I want to dig into here because one of the things that, again, that I talk about in the book is you start to build your audience and you start to become this magnet for opportunities. And clearly that's what you've done here. And as you've been telling your story, I think it's become, and we'll dig into it a little bit more in just a second here as well. But I want to talk about timeline here, right? So timeline, give me a sense of kind of how long between each of these milestones. So you sell your second company and you start blogging, right? And you said after two years of casual blogging, right? So you're just sort of writing for two years. You've already talked about what happened. I just want to get a sense of like how long it took basically from when you started blogging to self-publishing the, the hooked and then getting that picked up. Yeah. So let's see. So 2012, we sold the company that I helped found. I had learned a lot of this from working in that company. So that's something that I think is a little bit underrated as well that, you know, I talked to quite a few authors who say, I really want to write a book, but don't have very many interesting things to say because they haven't been immersed in a field that gives them any kind of insight, right? It was because I was in the right place at the right time that, that I knew to ask the right questions. Not even that I knew the answers because I think what drives me as an author is the curiosity of answering my own question. But I knew what the right questions were by being in that industry at that right time and place. Now, that might not necessarily be something that is a barrier. You don't necessarily have a special life experience to be a writer, but you do have to immerse yourself in the ideas that have already been shared so that you can talk with some kind of, of insight, really. So I would say that started previously before 2012. From 2008 to 2012, I was at my last company. And then from 2012, we published Hooked in 2014. So about two years of blogging and teaching, et cetera. And you know, the, the nice thing is about the age we live in, because the internet gives us access to so much information, right? It's all here in our fingertips, that you can become a world expert at things that nobody else is really a world expert in, especially if it's a new field like habit forming technology. That's very niche, but there really are no PhDs in habit forming technology. They don't really exist, right? There are no world experts in that. Well, guess what? If you sit down and you think about it and write about it and research and digest it and really plow into it and talk to the right people and read all the other literature from related fields, you can kind of become your own PhD. It's all out there. And right. you can become the world expert in whatever esoteric little field is interesting to you because nobody else is looking into it. <laughs> yeah, which is really interesting, right? So there's this concept of planting your flag, right? I'm going to own this bit of domain expertise, like you're saying, right? And a lot of the questions that I'm getting these days is, well, look, I mean, everything's been written, everything's been said, everything's been done. What can I talk about, right? What can I say yeah. that has not already been said? And yeah. I think what you're pointing out is, is amazing, right? You've if you've, you've had an experience, you've been immersed in some kind of work, right? If you can look at the trends that are happening in the marketplace 
and then start to kind of carve out a niche that combines those things, you can plant a unique flag like you've done, like habit-forming technology, for example. I would also say get a day job. Yeah, get a day job because here's the thing. In order to know what to be a domain expert in, you have to get domain expertise. Well, how do you get domain expertise? You spend a lot of time in a domain. Well, how do you do that? You need something to drive you to get past that hump of having to catch up with the experts. And that just takes time. It takes time to read what others have written, to debate things in your own mind, to know the flaws of the way you see the world so that you can see it more clearly. Therefore, you can explain it to others. So don't rush. The rule that I always use for my own writing is to follow my curiosity. That's kind of my mantra. When things are hard, I don't really feel like writing about something and it's difficult and you know I, I'm getting uh, agitated or bored by what I'm writing and I just want to do something else for a bit. Always looking for the curiosity, looking for the spark of what do I want to know, then that can sustain you. If you can keep your day job and then do whatever it is that you want to go really deep on, on nights and weekends yeah. and share that with the world. If you blog every week about a topic for two years, if you write a thousand words about whatever is interesting to you, not to teach others, but to teach yourself, start every blog post with a question, how to such and such, why is such and such, right? Whatever intriguing you. But if you can stay on that topic for just one year, 52 weeks of the year, a thousand words a week, 52,000 words, that's a book. You yeah, just yeah. wrote a book, two yeah. books, <laughs> right? right? But very few people can keep with the consistency because they don't follow their curiosity. They put expectations of themselves. Of, well, how do I become a bestseller? How do I get clients? How do I make a bunch of money? Yeah. Don't do that. Follow your passion. Follow the curiosity of the question you want answered. In the first of these, that's excellent advice. Before we hit record, we were talking about the white snake guitar player, Joe Hoekstra, who I interviewed for one of these as well. And in that interview, he says, in order to be a guitar player, you have to play guitar. Oh my gosh, yeah. Replace the writer with, you have to write. It's exactly true. I mean, so many people want to have written a book. Right. But almost nobody wants to write the book. <laughs> that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And I thought, like, at first I was like, that's dumb. And I was like, no, that's not dumb. That's profound, right? Like, oh, like, it's super profound. Right? You got to do the work, right? Like you said, like, you got to immerse yourself in the domain. So a couple years to get the blogging done, kind of four years till Hooked is published, right? From kind of when you sold your company, roughly? Uh, about two years. Two years. Okay. And then from there, it gets picked up how soon after, after... Only about like four months, I guess three or four months. Nice. It was purchased. Yeah. From what I hear, this might be a rumor, but the rumor is that, so you know how Amazon will do the recommend, recommended books, right? Yeah. So if you like this, you'll like that. Yeah. And apparently, again, this is just rumor. The rumor is that if you can get a hundred reviews, it doesn't matter good or bad. If you can get just a hundred reviews. Now that trips the algorithm to start recommending you to other people. So now you start getting free advertising. But only about 1% of books on Amazon ever get more than 100 reviews. The vast majority of books never get 100 reviews. So if you can be that 1% of books that gets 100 reviews, and I didn't know this at the beginning, but yeah. that suddenly, some reason, that tripping point. Now, it happened to be that people really liked Booked and the right. reviews were very good. But as you said earlier, it became a de-risked property, right? It's like if you want to start a business, if there's great cash flow, then you're happy to invest. It's when it's risky that you don't want to invest. 
So when my agent, first of all, my agent called me up, which you know I didn't call them. That's the hardest part about publishing, getting a book professionally published is finding an agent. I but know. she called me, I didn't call her. And then when she went out to sell the book, I never wrote a book proposal. She just opened up the Amazon page and say, look, people love this book. How much more would they love it if you professionally published it and made it look kind of like a, a book published by a random house versus one that was self-published. And yeah, that's all it took. Amazing. Amazing. And yeah, I have felt that pain of finding the publishing agent and I had to write the proposal. So I know that pain as well. So look, and this is coming across clearly in this conversation, so, which is fantastic, but I want to call out a couple of things. There's some qualities that have helped you become forever employable. And, and the qualities, again, that we talk about in the book, entrepreneurialism, obviously self-confidence, reinvention, that type of thing. I want to talk about self-confidence. I want to talk about self-confidence specifically because A, my perception of you, and we're just getting to know each other over these last couple of months, is that you don't lack for it, which is interesting. I don't feel that I like for it either too much. But whenever I talk to audiences about this topic, I do always do a poll about the five qualities of being forever employable self-confidence being one of them, it's always the tiniest one. People go like, no, I don't have any of that. Like I have, I'd love to keep learning. I'd love to keep improving. I might even have a little entrepreneurial spirit. Most people don't admit to that. But self-confidence, it's almost 0%. Like you know, it doesn't matter how many people are on, on a webinar or a call. I would love if you could share a story from your past that has helped you develop your self-confidence to the point where, you're like, hey, I can write a book. Hey, I can get up on stage and talk to a couple thousand people. Where did that come from for you? I took a really wonderful class in college about jazz. I'm not a jazz aficionado, but I took this amazing class. And what I learned in the class, so we had this wonderful professor who was a jazz aficionado. And one of the first lessons that we learned was that he taught us about how jazz is really the intersection of African beats and, and African influence with European instruments mm -hmm. and how it's that blending of old creates something new. I always remember that when I thought to myself, like, who the heck am I? Like, what do I have to offer that hasn't already been said? I always tell myself it's just jazz. <laughs> that whatever it is, even if I'm taking 90% old stuff, the 10% of weaving in what's in me and unique only to my life experience is gonna make jazz. It's gonna make something brand new. And so that to me is how I give myself the permission to say things publicly that when I don't feel self-confident, when I'm not sure about, well, has this already been said? I say to myself, well, that's okay if it's already been said. The instruments that made jazz were around for a very long time, but they weren't played the same way. And so that's the same way with writing. You can say essentially the same lesson. Many of these lessons, there's nothing new under the sun, right? <laughs> like right. there's very few things that are really, really profoundly new in the world. But there's a, a huge appetite for people to get the same message in a slightly different way. It's said from a different point of view. And so that, I think, has always given me the confidence to say things with my unique voice. Amazing. Amazing. It's super interesting to hear. And it's a jazz reference I haven't heard before, which is great because I've, I've used jazz in my work as well. You hear jazz used as a metaphor for collaboration techniques and that type of thing. But as a kind of at the root, like the makeup of it the fundamental makeup of it as kind of inspiration for allowing yourself to deliver things that have been around a long time, focus or a slightly new twist or a slightly different perspective that is uniquely yours because you're the only one who's had that experience with that right. stuff. 
Right, right. Like jazz could not have started in Africa. Jazz had to start in America, right? Because it was the intersection of these various backgrounds. Just like there's the intersection of old ideas with your new experience creates something very unique. I will say too that the time to be most self-confident is when you, in fact, lack it most when you're getting started. Mm. That I think a lot of people who are just getting started and ask the sort of questions that you're asked around like, well, what do I write about? And how do I know that there's market demand and all that stuff? The beauty of, of starting out is that nobody's reading your crap. Right? <laughs> like I look back at my early articles, they're horrible. The early blog posts are terrible. They are so bad. I would never have published them now knowing what I know now. But back then, nobody was reading. And so I didn't care if it sucked. I didn't know it sucked. But the fact that like now I do care, right? Like it's right. when you get more experience that you actually should be more self-confident because now you have people to disappoint. If you're right. just getting started, right. write about anything, right? Just write about something that interests you. Nobody's reading anyway. Right, right, yeah. That's really, really good advice, right? You might as well try a bunch of stuff and then see what sticks. This has been tremendous, like so much tactical, practical advice, which I love and then like, I pride myself on as well. Let's, get, let's put some stuff out there that people can actually take action on. So thank you for this. So one kind of final question here. So the pandemic has shut down the world. We're slowly starting to reopen a little bit. You are based in New York City. You saw the writing on the wall. It was happening there. And you picked up your family and moved to Singapore, right? Really, it's just kind of the other side of the world. Temporarily, you're not there forever. At least that's what I understand to be the current plan. And so how were you able to do that, right? So when we talk, we talk about building these kind of, these opportunity magnets, right? So this, this, this forever employable platform where you are the domain expert and clearly you're the domain expert on a series of topics at this point. How are you able to kind of pick up your life and move it to the other side of the world and continue working? Yeah, I mean, that is one of the great luxuries of being forever employable is that with this kind of model that, that you describe, you aren't tied down. I mean, when, when this pandemic hit, we'd been homeschooling my daughter. I have an 11 year old little girl here and we've been homeschooling her for about five years and I've been working from home for eight years or so. So it's, it was nothing new for us, you know, so only our rooms changed, but essentially our day-to-day -day life hasn't changed. And to me, that's always been a tremendous luxury. I mean, I'm, it's not everyone's personality. I think a lot of people really like having a boss and an office and they kind of miss that. For me, like I live in ideas, right? I love having time to think and digest and process and research and write. Like I really love that and really value the ability to decide what I will do with my time. So the benefit of that is that like, well, let me tell you this. My first job out of college, I was a consultant at the Boston Consulting Group, which is a very high pressure, always on type culture. Now they've gotten a lot better. But back then in 2001, it was a very, very difficult work environment. And I always remember Monday mornings feeling so crappy. <laughs> I didn't want to go to work. I hated it. I mean, to go work for, you know, to go to have to be at this spot at this time. It, it, to me, it felt like being a slave. I just hated it. And I made the transition from like corporate life, which I very quickly learned wasn't for me, to starting my own business as an entrepreneur. But then I also felt super tied down entrepreneurship is not all it's cracked up to be. Your boss is just your customers and your employees. Now you have obligations. You still have to go to work Monday morning. <laughs> and I still have that case of the Mondays. And today, because I'm forever employable, I love Mondays, right? I can't wait to get yeah. back to work. And so I think that's, to me, 
more valuable than money is freedom. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Thank you. That was fantastic. I think you shared a tremendous amount of wealth, uh, actionable bits of information. And I really appreciate you spending the time with me and sharing your story with us, Nir. Thanks so much. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Jeff. Thanks again for joining me for this episode of Forever Employable Stories. If you enjoyed the show and learned something new, tell a friend. The best way you can help us grow is to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform and send this episode to someone you think can benefit from it. As always, feel free to reach out and connect on LinkedIn. I'd love to hear from you. Do you know someone who has a great Forever Employable story? Someone who has built a platform and an audience using their unique skills and experience? If so, I want to talk to them. Send me a note at jeff at gothealth.co and let me know.